Psalm 56. You heard the text read earlier. Let's consider it together. Thank you for speaking to one another in the songs that we sing. You just announced the gospel message to everyone that's here, that Christ in the place of sinners died to offer us forgiveness and everlasting life. And having tasted that kindness of the Lord, we now live our lives differently. We live them for Him. We're going to follow that same outline in Psalm 56 as we consider it together this morning. Our theme for the youth retreat was the wild frontier. So we had some fun with some silly Western kind of themed games and such. But for our Bible studies, we considered the examples in Scripture of those who took great risks of faith. So like the pioneers of old that would have come, you know, St. Louis and through Independence, Missouri here, heading west with all the uncertainty and all the risk, it almost seemed crazy. But oftentimes the, the value of what was there for them and a new beginning, a new homestead was worth the risk. So we wanted to find that kind of risk in the scriptures We looked at a number of different examples. They would study them in the morning. We'd consider others in the evening. One of the examples is the people of Israel that are rescued out of Egypt and led to the brink of the promised land. They send 12 spies to map out how they're going to conquer the land. But 10 of those spies discouraged the people from believing God's promise and entering into this land of giants. They didn't risk their lives in faith. Instead, they wasted their lives and died in the wilderness. So that generation, along with many other stories of the Old Testament, give us examples of people who had a choice to make. Am I going to risk my life believing that all I have is Christ? Or am I going to be cautious and safe and end up wasting my life. In Psalm 56, David is facing danger and risk. And this begs the question, is it really worth it to trust God? David had been anointed to be the king of God's people, and yet he's continually harassed by Saul and his enemies. And we would have to step back and ask, is it worth it? Is it worth it to live the Christian life in places where it is costly? Ultimately, David says, yes, it's worth it because I know who God is. I know what he's done for his people. So come what may, I will trust him. I will live for him. That's how the psalm will end. So whatever happens before that, we know where David's going He's going to worship. I will perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings. You have delivered my soul from death, my feet from falling, so that I may walk before God in the light of life. That's the last verse of the song. If God's rescued me, then I'm going to live this life that I have left for him. 
How does David get there? I want us to consider faith in the midst of fear. Rest in the midst of risk. So that when I am afraid and when the risk seems great, I know what the Psalms call me to. A life of trust. A life of confidence in God. You've got seven kind of movements to this song there in your notes. It's really just following along in the psalm. And so whether you see it in the notes or just keep your eyes on the psalm, let's, let's follow David's path, which is a path of risk and danger, encompassed by fear, and yet he presses on through that in trust. In verse 1, David says, Be gracious to me, O God. I cry to God desperately. We're seeking God's favor. We're longing for his kindness. What did you pray for this week? In essence, you were praying that God would favor your request, grant that need, heal that little one, uh, provide financially, whatever it was. I cry to God desperately. Many of the Psalms begin this way. David would say in the beginning of the Psalms, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Are you in distress? Many of you would say, Oh no, I'm good. But then come tomorrow morning, you're going to immediately feel the weight of that looming problem at work. Or you'll be reminded of that conflict in some relationship. So where is the stress factor in your life right now? David says, when I was in distress, I called out, be gracious to me, O God. In the very next psalm, Psalm 57, David says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Some of you, if you've been in church long enough, may know the old hymn, till the storm passes over, till the storm passes by, taken from this psalm. It's the reminder that life will have storms. Life will be hard. We will cry out of our distress. We will say to the Lord, Lord, would you please show some favor, some kindness? Would you be gracious to me or merciful? I don't deserve this, but I, I'm, I'm in a storm. I need some help. What is causing you distress? Is it finances? Is it relationships? Is it parenting that we've been talking about in the Sunday school hour? Schooling is coming up, career changes or direction, politics, the ever-present stressor. What is it that would lead you to come to Psalm 56 and not get much further than the first six words? Be gracious to me, O God. Cry out for grace. You have a God-written script for this prayer. 
You don't need to think about it much this week. Just pray these words. Be gracious to me, O God. You may not even be feeling enormous stress, but you would be right to pray often. God, be gracious to me. I need your grace. So why this beginning? Why this desperate prayer? Well, because verses 1 and 2 remind us, my enemies hurt me persistently. Listen to how David describes his problems. Man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. Look at verse 5. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. My enemies hurt me persistently. Trampled, attacked, oppressed, injured for evil, strife, waiting for my life, guilty of crimes. David says, my life is hard. This life of being anointed to be the king of God's people is not what I was expecting. God, would you be gracious to me? It it seems like all day, every day, it's just one problem after another. And some of you have been in seasons of life like this. You can look back and say, well, there was this month last year or there was this period of three years when we were going through something and it, it just felt like everything was going wrong. All day long, he says, three times. Sometimes we tend to overuse expressions like this. Nothing's working out. Well, some things did, but we just kind of summarize it in, it's bad. All day long, life is a struggle. And then you wake up and do it again. That's how David felt. Three times he tells us every day, it just seems like it's nothing but problems, conflict, tension, struggle, weakness, fear. My enemies hurt me persistently. We step back and we look at David, the shepherd boy, summoned by Jesse because all the other sons weren't the one. And David is anointed and we're like, wow, a man after God's own heart. And he's just a teenager. And then we get to Psalm 56 and we think, I don't think I want to do that. I cry to God desperately. My enemies hurt me persistently. Now you understand why David says next, when I am afraid. Because even the Christian life is a life of hardship and risk. We, like David, will face uncertainty. We, like David, we being God's church, and certainly in other places of the country, will be exposed to physical danger as David was. We will need to make choices without the benefit of seeing into the future, and those choices could prove costly. We will encounter hostility for the name of Christ more and more in our culture. 
we will find ourselves in situations when we are afraid. So let me pause here to explore a question. Is it wrong to be afraid? Or we could ask, is it a sin to feel fear? Now we know the Bible often says, do not be afraid, but what does it mean in that state of being afraid? Because here the psalmist says, when I am afraid, I know I have a choice to make. I I need to put my trust in the Lord. I would submit to you that fear is a sign that you are about to make a choice. I don't want to argue this morning the point that being afraid is sinful. I want to argue the point that I think the Bible is often saying when it tells us to not be afraid, it's saying don't be in that state of being overwhelmed by fear. Don't choose to wallow in that, but choose instead to put your trust in the Lord. The psalmist here doesn't feel the need to confess the sin of being afraid. He simply recognizes there is a choice to be made. When I am afraid, what am I going to do? And am I going to listen to the lies of the devil? God doesn't care about you. Why would God let this happen? Life is so hard. Life is unfair. Woe is me. Or am I going to believe what the scriptures say? This I know that God is for me. So I'm going to trust him. Moses at the burning bush hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. That would that would put a twist on our answer, if we think being afraid is sin, then there must be some kind of being afraid that's good because he was afraid of the holiness of God. In Exodus 20, as the people feared at Mount Sinai, as the mountain shook at God's presence, Moses said, do not fear. By that he means, don't be afraid of the circumstances that seem so daunting. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. In other words, you have a choice to make. You can be fearful just because of dark clouds and lightning and shaking mountains or you can recognize who God is. You have a choice to make. Gideon is told to go to battle against the camp of the Midianites, but he was afraid. God said this in Judges 7, but if you are afraid to go down against the Midianites, go down to the camp with Pura your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. God tells Gideon, listen, I know you're afraid, so sneak down with your servant to the edge of the Midianite camp, and you're going to overhear what they say. They're terrified. And that's going to help you understand that you have a choice to make when you face fear. You can trust God or you can consider all the circumstances and stay in fear. God's willing to help Gideon here move beyond fear to faith. Oh, I guess God could have scolded Gideon. We kind of hear that tone of Jesus for the disciples. Oh, ye of little faith. Why won't you hear what I'm saying? Or why won't you believe these things? Here God says, Gideon, I know you're afraid. Let me help you out a little bit. Let me just give you a glimpse into how I work. So Gideon gets to sneak down and see how God had already providentially begun to stir up the Midianites in fear. 
And now Gideon sees that. He gets a glimpse of how God works and he realizes God's got this. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, a coalition of enemies is coming to attack Israel. King Jehoshaphat is in charge and the text tells us when he was afraid, he set his face to seek the Lord. Psalm 78, describing the exodus, God led them in safety so that they were not afraid. You see, they were afraid at the sea, but then God parts the sea and he says, let me help you understand, you you don't need to fear. I've got this. You only saw Egyptians coming from behind and a sea that would drown you before, but neither one of them are a problem to God. We can trust him. We move from fear to safety because we trust God. Finally, in Psalm 112, we read, He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. In other words, echoing Psalm 56, the Christian life will have its bad news, its hardships, its sorrows. It's circumstances that will make you feel the fear of what is going to happen. And now you have a choice to make, like Jehoshaphat, like Gideon, like every Christian that has faced hard times. When I am afraid, what will I do? The text says we have to trust in God. David was facing this rising fear attacked, trampled on, seeking his life. And he felt the fear rising and he says, what time I am afraid? Because I am. But in those moments, I must remember who God is. If we boil it down to real simple language, we could say the problems and the sorrows and the risks and the dangers and the fears of life are really big. So your only hope is a bigger God. You're going to have to figure out who God is and decide if he is bigger than any problem you can face. Nowhere in the Bible does the Bible minimize sorrow and fear and trouble and persecution. It just lifts our eyes to something bigger. The maker of heaven and earth. The God that you can trust. So it appears that we should be afraid of the right things, but when tempted to dwell in the overwhelming fear of the wrong things, then we heed David's call to faith. Look what he says in verse 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Look down at verse 10. This little refrain is repeated. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And we could add to that question, what can can a created being do to me that won't be completely overwhelmed by, secured in the purpose of the creator. I'll trust in God. 
I trust in God confidently. Three times he says he's trusting God. He's making a point that trusting God is the one thing he is sure of. I don't know what's going to happen with my enemies. They're trampling. They're lying in wait. They're lurking. They're waiting for my life. David doesn't know how this will end, but he does know who God is. In God, whose word I praise, in God I will put my trust. And did you note that also three times we see that his faith is connected to God's word? It's not just even that David is saying, I will trust in God. He's saying, I know who that God is through the word that I praise. I praise his word because it's opened up to me the very character of God and the promises of God. And so every expression of faith in this psalm is met with an expression of reliance or praise for the word of God that has revealed God to us. At some point, we have to realize that, that our understanding, our study of, our love for the Word of God influences the measure of our faith in God. So if this sits quietly on the shelf week after week, it's no surprise that you might have a question mark in between David's two phrases, when I am afraid, I will trust in the God. You might be languishing to get from one to the other because you're not feasting in the, in the word. You're not saying, I trust in God whose word I praise. You might be stopping at, I trust in God who I'm hoping can fix my problem. God may have no intent to fix your problem. He may be using it and working it for good to make you into something far more than a problem-free Christian. He wants a trusting Christian. The great aim of this psalm is to call us to trust in God, even when life is hard. And so we can sympathize with David, harassed and persecuted to an extreme degree, crying out in desperation, be gracious to me when I am afraid, and I am. I know that amidst all the uncertainty, there is one certainty I can drop an anchor onto the character of God, which is revealed in his word. At this point, we could ask, why was David so ready to trust God? Frankly, after seeing all the trouble that he's facing for having been anointed king, we might ask, why would we want to follow God if this is the life we are stuck with? It looks like the wicked prospered. It looks like the righteous are suffering. David has a defense for his call to trust in God. He says, when I am afraid, I will trust in God. We look at verses 1 and 2 and 5 to 7, all these harassments and problems, and we would rightly ask David, David, why are you so sure of trusting in God? And then David gives us his answer. Beginning... In verse 8, trust in God because God knows the cost exactly. But when we look at the text, we see there's tears, verse 8. 
You have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? David's point is, yes, life is hard. I'm afraid. I'm suffering. The tears are flowing. But I will trust God because he knows exactly what he has asked me to do. God knows the cost. Jesus knew exactly what he was telling his disciples when he said, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You don't get to pine for the good old days like the Israelites did. Oh, that we were in Egypt. It was so good there. No, it wasn't. Exodus 2 is clear that for hundreds of years they'd been crying out to God for deliverance. And then in just two weeks, they're saying, oh, that we were back in Egypt. That's the lie of the devil. We need to understand God knows exactly what he is asking us to do. God had a purpose for David. David's not seeing how this is going to end well, but God is. And he's asking David to risk much and to suffer much, but he knows exactly the cost. David says, you have kept count of my tossings or wanderings. God, you know exactly how many caves I've slept in lately. You know exactly how many times I've foregone a good meal, how long it's been since I've seen my family. God, you know everything. You're keeping a record of it. He goes on to say, you've put my tears in your bottle. What kind of bottle is this that could catch every tear of every saint? What kind of God is that knowing? That all-present what kind of God cares that much that every tear and every solitude in every quiet place of every parent, of every young person, of every grandparent, every tear captured in a bottle, he knows exactly the suffering that he has asked you to endure. And when we add the doctrine of suffering from the New Testament, we see that our suffering is, is filling up the suffering of Christ, that we're united with him, and that even in our suffering, God is at work accomplishing his perfect plan. Are they not in your book? Some kind of ledger, some kind of accounting of every injustice done to God's people that will be made right. It will be vindicated because every suffering here will be met with an exceeding weight of glory, the New Testament says. And while the language here is literary in the sense of we don't necessarily need God to have an actual glass bottle that's an ocean of tears, and he, need, he needs not to have a book and a ledger because God in his perfect wisdom and knowledge can account for all of that in his own self. But these are expressions to help us understand that just like an audit could review an accountant's books and find discrepancies and find embezzlement, there, there's precision there, there's exactness, and so it is with God. Nothing escapes him. You can never suffer in any way, in any degree, 
where God will not completely know and understand that suffering. David's point is simply this. You can trust God. Because even when it looks like your life is hard, God knows the cost exactly. But he has another argument. After telling us that life may be hard, but God knows. And and just remember, David isn't telling us that there won't be tears when you live for God. It'll be all the good life. No, he's not saying that. He is saying you can trust God to deal graciously with you in your pain. But he's got another reason. We see it in verse 9. When he says, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. He also says in verse 7, for their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. That's a a prayer of both lament, be gracious to me, I'm suffering when I'm afraid, I'll trust. But there's also some imprecation here. The imprecatory psalms, this is one phrase tucked away in there. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. These evildoers, the ones who seek for his life. David says you can trust God not only because God knows the cost exactly, but because God defeats his enemies ultimately. David was going to wander some more. The very next psalm is another cave, another narrow escape from Saul's persecuting army. Ultimately, though, God defeats his enemies. The psalmist is asking the question, will they get away with it? Will justice be served? And if we're honest, we have to answer the question, in this life, they may get away with it. And justice may not be served. But ultimately, the God of perfect righteousness will vindicate every injustice and wrongdoing. David's saying you can trust God because evil will never outmaneuver him, will never overpower him, evil will never succeed. There will always be a day of reckoning for evil. David looks at his enemies and he's tempted to believe there's a reason not to trust God because everywhere I go it seems like my enemies are after me. What's the use in being anointed a king and living for God if I'm on the run? He says, wait a minute. Are they going to get away with this? The answer is absolutely not. But he has a final reason for trusting God. It's kind of the summary of his psalm. If there's one phrase that you should memorize and know where it is, Psalm 56, it's here in verse 9. When David says, yes, you can trust God because he knows the cost of suffering exactly. You can trust God because he'll defeat his enemies ultimately. You can trust God because God is for us. Assuredly. This I know, David says. And he doesn't say that I will actually live long enough to make it to the throne. Or that I'll be delivered from Saul. That he won't catch me in the next cave and dismember me like I did to Goliath, the enemy. No, David didn't speak of any certainty regarding his circumstances. He says this, 
This I know that God is for me. God is for us, assuredly. This is the heart of what we mean when we say, I'm trusting in God. Because we could go back to verse 3 and say, when I am afraid, I will trust in the Lord. But I would say, what do you mean by that? What are you actually believing or trusting? And oftentimes, our first thought is, well, that it'll all work out, or that God will answer the prayer. And that's not the right answer, because it may not work out. The tumor may not shrink. You may not ever be able to conceive a child. You may not get married despite that longing. You might lose the job instead of getting the promotion. We have to stop thinking that my definition of what is best is what the Bible is assuring us. David says, this I know. Despite having just cried out, I'm afraid. It looks like my enemies are going to trample on me. They're going to take my life. He says, but this I know that God is for me. What if you lived in the Middle East and your church was just burned down this week and we're gathering in some field somewhere? Or if you live in India and you know that they're coming after you and they're getting away with all kinds of persecution of Christians. And what if you're one of the ones they track down and want to make a display of and so your mangled dead body is left in the streets after the mob beats you to death as some Indian believers were this week? Is this any less true? Is God for them or is he only for us because our cars are running well and we're able to buy a new house and plenty of food on the table at lunch today? We just have to be careful that we're not thinking in the same line of thought that we critique in the prosperity gospel. God is for us. That means we can say with Paul, whether it be in life or death, my life will glorify him. So for me to live is Christ, and I'll keep trying to do that the best I can, but to die is gain because God is for me. I know there's a lot on your plate, and the future may be uncertain, and you may be very afraid, but this you can know too that God is for you. It's there in Scripture to see and believe, but it's there in the story of Jesus, given for us, because we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't be good enough. And so God said, because you can't come to me, he told Adam and Eve, you won't enter back into this fellowship of the garden. And he put an angel there with a flaming sword to remind them, you'll never get back to that place of sweet fellowship with God. You're a sinner and God is holy. There's an impassable gap. You can't come to God. There's no righteousness you can bring. You're not fit for heaven. So God says, I'll come to you. And he sends his only son, Jesus, to keep the law perfectly where we had failed to keep it. 
He dies on the cross to pay the price of sin. The wages of sin is death. And then he walks out of the grave to show us that ours is everlasting life if we trust in Jesus. God is for us, and he demonstrates that love for us through Jesus Christ. Do you believe these four words? God is for me. I would submit to you that the greatest challenge of your spiritual life this week will be to believe these words when the devil starts whispering the exact same lie of the Garden of Eden. God's not for you. He's holding back on you. He's keeping something from you. Look at the house they live in. Look at the ease they live in. Look at the job he has. And he'll stir up in you the thought that maybe God isn't for me. Your health may tank out this week. And you'll be tempted, even with just a little bit of opposition to your health, to question, why is God doing this? Doesn't he care? Doesn't he know? Doesn't he? Wait a minute. Will you believe these four words, come what may? God is for us. I'm not saying this is an easy battle to be won. When you watch an infant struggle at the hospital, you want to know, God, what are you doing here? And all we may have is the faith, not the rationalization that I can see how this is all good for me, but the simple faith that God is for me. And then what? When you come to believe these words that God is for me, then David's conclusion can be yours. Verses 12 and 13. I will live for him gratefully. I will live for him gratefully. Because David has argued for why we can trust God, he says, okay, then here's where I, I, I stand right now. Life is hard. I'm being harassed, persecuted, all the problems. I'm afraid, but I know I can trust God. He knows the cost of my suffering exactly. He'll ultimately defeat our enemies. And, and this I know that God is for me. With that confidence, I will perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. And I would say, for what? Because with a tone of sarcasm, we could say, are you going to thank God for being trampled on, being attacked, being injured? Are you going to thank God for those who are lying in wait to take your life? Are you going to thank God for life being fearful? What would David's answer be? He'd probably answer it like you would. You'd say something like, well, I don't know if I can thank God for all those things, but because I hate making that list and saying, here's what I'm thankful for, but I know I can thank God at least in all these things because I know that even in them, God is for me. So I'm going to find some lambs and I'm going to make a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. 
Because this life of suffering he calls momentary. But the reward of heaven he calls forever. And if suffering is his plan for me, I will trust him because he is for me. There's all kinds of suffering and hardship in this room. There's single parenting. There's debilitating sickness. There is debilitating guilt of the past. There's plenty of sorrow and trouble to go around. But somehow we're supposed to wrap that all up in faith in a good God so that we can conclude in worship, in thanksgiving. I'll perform my vows. I'll bring these thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, you have delivered my feet from falling. Why? Why did God save you? So that I may walk before God in the light of life. That word for light is the the idea of daybreak or sunrise. It's the dawn. In other words, I'll live every day as if it was a new dawning of realization that I've been rescued. God has saved me. So every life, every day I'm considering the mercies of God and recognizing my only response to God being so good to me is to live my life a living sacrifice. David's just kind of giving us the, the prequel to Romans 12. I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Why would you sacrifice and risk and live through fear and uncertainty and pain and sorrow and persecution? Why would you do that? Because this I know. In God's mercy and in his grace, he is for me. If God has rescued you from sin and death eternally, then he will sustain you through this temporal life of danger and risk. The questions that remain are, will you believe that God is for you today and tomorrow and in the circumstances of next week and the next year and Will you live your life for him? Will every day be a dawning, a sunrise of hope that because God is for me, I can do this today. I can walk the path he has set before me today because I know God is for me. Heavenly Father, we believe these things Help us in our moments of unbelief. When life is hard and the circumstances like sea waves threaten to drown us, would you bring your words back to our minds that you are for us so that we may conclude, in God I will trust. Lead us to your word this week where we see your character revealed, (laughs) your promises made so that our faith will be strengthened. And may we consider this psalm this morning and draw the conclusion that 
we will live our lives for this one who has rescued us. He will do us no wrong. He is for us. To you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we commit our trust, believing that you are good. Solidify this truth in our hearts, we pray. Amen.